Hello and welcome back to the Longest Battle podcast. I'm very pleased to say that Trisha Goddard is here today to do the Longest Battle podcast. Trisha has been through some very tricky times and has survived. We used to work together at Granada TV. I can't wait to hear her story and hear what the future holds. Hi, hi. Hello. Thanks so much for coming along to the You're podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. Where did your TV career start? It started... Oh my gosh, really my television career started when I was about 13 or 14 and I used to be obsessed with making movies and my stepdad had an old um, Cine 8 camera and I used to muck around with it and make movies. So I made one one year, I used a, oh, oh gosh, people don't even use that technology anymore and I sent it into BBC Young Film Director of the Year Award and I got, I won a, won a, a runner-up prize and the prize was a, a cement um, splicing machine that's how you used to put films together yeah. with cement and um, so I won that and I entered it the next year um, and the next year I also got a runner-up and um, with this annoying we went to meet John Craven and it was this <laughs> annoying little boy with near me who did these stupid plasticine figures and it was funny many 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 years later I was at Buckingham Palace actually at a reception for the media and this chap bounded up to me and said you don't remember me I was a runner-up um, for young film director BBC young film director uh, he was quite a bit younger than me and he, he, I said oh god the kid with the plasticine figures and it was Nick Parks who went on to do Wallace and Gromit okay. so together we went to find John Craven and said <laughs> we were runners up and he said oh wow and we said and we said, who won that year? And he said, I don't know. And we said, exactly. You know, <laughs> but it started then really. It was always a hobby. But I actually, and I did lots of courses while I was a stewardess and other things. But I actually got into television when I was 28 years old in Australia okay. with SBS. Yeah. yeah. Great. And how did you move into uh, London? What happened then? Well, I, I, I started in television. I started with News and Current Affairs in Sydney in Australia because I've got dual nationality British Australian and I um, did news and current affairs until I right after I had my daughter and I was 32 my eldest daughter and then I just couldn't do news and current affairs anymore and I'd always been interested in health and social welfare mm -hmm. so the ABC in Australia like the BBC said what would you like to do and I said I'd like to do a health and social welfare program which we did called everybody and then from that I formed my own production company and made a show called live it up which was a half hour daily talk health show so it's a bit like the doctors if you know that show mm. called the doctors with an agony aunt and what have you and then I was headhunted you know I, I got this message on my answer machine saying you don't know who I am my name's Malcolm Allsop I'm with um uh Anglia television and we're looking for somebody to do a show you know I was like, yeah, yeah, right. So he flew out to Australia to see me. And I was just telling somebody today, funnily enough, the show they wanted me to do was what was provisionally called The L Room, which was the forerunner to Loose Women. That's what I was brought over to do. But very quickly, the whole thing with Vanessa happened. She resigned. Mm -hmm. And within, I landed on the Friday. Um, it was bank holiday Monday. On the Tuesday, I started my British 
talk show and the rest, as they say, is history. And how long were you doing the Trisha show for? Well, I started in 1998 and then I took it to Channel 5 in 2005 and I left Channel 5 in 2009. So Quite a long time. A long time. And then I, <laughs> then I, I filled in on Morrie. For the, uh-huh. In the States, they asked me to come over and do conflict resolution. Mm. Um, and, of course, I, I worked through my breast cancer diagnosis, my operations, my chemo, radiotherapy mm. and what have you in 2008. So I, I was rather happy at going to the States once every few weeks to work on Murray. And it rated so well, so then they asked me to come to the States and do my show again. So if you add that bit in, uh, it's another three or four years in the States as well. Wow, okay. So you've had some pretty tricky times in your in your time. Yeah. Um, so what, was there, I remember being working on in the studio on Trisha's show when you had to sort of um, like stand up and say that you had to deal with, you were dealing with depression oh, in yeah. a different, yeah. difficult ways. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that time. Was that difficult well, for you? Well, I, I, in hindsight, probably went through many cycles of depression, but, you know, nobody... If nobody tells you what it is, and in those days there wasn't nearly the information as there was, is now, you kind of just think that's you. So I I actually had a breakdown in 2004, just after I had my second daughter, and I was hospitalised for that. And that was a whole load of life experiences together with, with bad coping mechanisms, because I think one muddles by as best one can, and you come, you think, oh, well, if this happens, this is what I do. And I used to just work harder. (laughs) And um, I had very little left in the tank. I had a newborn baby. I was breastfeeding. I was running a production company. I was doing a daily TV show. Um, You know, I was doing too much. So when my then uh, husband, you know, I found out he was having an affair and then there was keeping it quiet from everybody. Anyway, I just really fell in a heap and I was hospitalised for five weeks. And as a condition of get to get out of hospital, I had to have therapy twice a week for quite a long while, Mm. which was a blessing in disguise because I learned another way to cope. I mean, mm. I've always said like mental health problems are no different from physical health problems. And if one had, I don't know, high cholesterol, mm. you're going to have some kind of heart attack unless you learn how to cope, what to eat, what not to eat, exercise to do and so on. And the same is exactly the same for depression. I basically had to learn a, a, another way to live and to cope and to manage my mental health rather than suffer from it. Yeah. Definitely. That's really interesting. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, studio. Um, and how are you feeling now? Because obviously you've been through all of this. How, how's your mental health now? Really, strangely, very good. I think the thing that really taught me, because you always wonder, you know, how strong is my mental health? I think once you've had any health scare, you're always a little bit sort of on edge. You can slip back. But when I went through my breast cancer diagnosis in 2008, I think if I was going to get ill or fall in a heap, it would have been then. But what I discovered is that my managing and my coping mechanisms had become not just good enough to make me manage with my mental health and and depression, but also really helped with my breast cancer. 
Um, you know, because it's the same thing, really. It was, I was one of the first people they kept on the medication past five years because I didn't have osteoporosis like the large majority of women get on the drug. I... I use one drug instead of the nice, uh, you know, most women are using four or five. I don't need anything to help me sleep. Not very much now and again, I suppose I do. I don't need anything for my bone density. I don't need statins because the drug pushes up cholesterol. So all of the things that I'd learned to do for my mental health actually proved an absolute lifesaver for my physical health. I mean... Really, I suppose when you think about it, it's a no-brainer. But <laughs> you need something that to happen, though, don't you? To yeah. then start thinking, right, this is what yeah, have this to works. Do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. So recently, you found out that you were adopted. How did that make you feel? Well, it wasn't so much that I was ad- adopted. It was that my the person I thought was my father was told was my father all my life wasn't, and I'd always suspected it I mean my my sisters used to call me the adopted one you know and they teased me um and I knew I didn't look anything like them or what have you in this day and age I would have worked it out but when I when I was growing up in England and in Tanzania um and then in Norfolk there were no other families of colors of color around so I couldn't look at them and say oh hang on Mm. you know my sisters are definitely part white but I'm not I just went with what I was told and they did look I mean my half sisters were lighter than my daughters are now but you know I always suspected it and not until mummy died in 2004 did my stepfather actually say anything and that was because my mother was Catholic in those days Mm. and to have a child out of wedlock and it was just the shame of it Um, and so it was really hard at first because I kind of looked back on a lot of my life as a bit of a lie because there'd been, I think, so it was like that film, um, what's it called, uh, about lies, families and secrets and lies about families. It's a massive and, thing to then deal with it as well. It's like all those things on top of it. It's yeah, amazing. I think yeah. it was It was just that um, it was good and bad because... Mm. Part of me thought, oh, my gosh, I wasn't mad. I wasn't imagining it. I was right. Actually, my my um, sixth sense, if you like, is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty good at working things out. So I'm not... So in, one, in many ways, it was a relief. But there was a lot of sadness as well because I've, I've you know, then tried... I've pieced together as much as I can, but I haven't been able to track down... Um, who my father was I'm pretty close I think I know who it was but he's since passed away mm, yeah. um so you know it but you know in time it, it almost means more to my daughters than it does me I mean I would like to know because there's health, a lot of health things associated with it as well yeah. so but there you go life's not always that easy is it yeah that's that's interesting isn't it so Massive life-changing thing that you had to go through. Oh, yeah, yeah. So have you always been a very determined lady? Because you've had massive life-changing mm. things that have happened. Is it, is that, have you always been that person or have you had ups and downs? Uh, I don't know. I think that often it's the negative things in life that build our character. And somehow I have got together... Um, what I'd call it is resilience 
And you don't learn, unfortunately, I wish you did, you don't really learn resilience from everything being hunky-dory. Mm. Some of the people who take things the worst and get knocked back at the worst are people who've gone into adulthood and beyond living what on paper looks like the ideal life. Mm. But I've all, we, you, we only find out our strengths and weaknesses when things go wrong. So I suppose growing up, never fitting in, I never felt I fit in for many reasons. I didn't because my mm. sister, you know, and I could yeah. sense I was treated differently. I didn't feel I fit in at school. Um, I was, I guess I, I was lucky in that I was very bright and I used my brightness as an escape so I used to spend a lot of time in my head and daydreaming mm. used to get in the cupboard and pretend I'd gone to Narnia <laughs> <laughs> lie on my back and make up countries in the sky but um, as I told my younger daughter because she was dreadfully bullied at school and she never felt she fit in because she's like five foot nine mm. and she was been that tall for so long and she's very gifted very very bright girl mm. and I said to her, you know what, the plus is if you never feel you fit in, if you don't fit in, there are two ways of looking at it. You can get really upset about that or you can think, well, I don't fit in anyway, so I might as well do whatever I want. And I feel sorry, like my eldest daughter was always like what they'd call in America the prom princess and, mm. you know, always on a pedestal. And I think that's a lot harder when you yeah. never fit in, when you've never been one of the crowd, mm. you, if if you're helped, if somebody helps you see that, eventually, I mean, we used to say to my daughter, look, nobody gets you at the moment. When mm. you get to university, they will. And I mean, she was always the youngest. I mean, she got her master's at 22. She's in management now at 23, and she's just been taken on to do um, a fast a fast course, a shortened, a very accelerated course to be um, do a master's in social work wow, and she'll okay. be one of a first second lot of specially trained mental health so she's gone psychology oh, she's wow. done mental health and she's now going to do the fast track yeah. social work and it's a new and she'll do some law so it's a new mm. body of people of social mental health social workers who will be able to cover the law um sitting on tribunals, working with children, mm. working with the courts, working with the police, because those things yeah. have never linked up. Now, she she's only just hit her stride at 23. And mm. the people she's working with, the people she manages, the youngest person's probably 26. Mm. Um, she does two jobs. She works at um, uh, Ortis, or Ortis, which is the King's College um, mm. uh conference center because yeah. she speaks languages she manages she's a manager there and then in her spare time she works on acute psychiatric wards and she's been building up her points you know she never fit in so she she's never said oh I can't do that or I won't do that because my friends aren't doing it and I was the same I was like mm. Well, I'm never going to fit in anyway, so I might as well do what I want to do. Yeah. And that's that's what's helped me get through. Definitely. So um, you've been dealing with breast cancer. Um, and how are things now? What's happened and what are you dealing with now? Um, well, I was diagnosed in 2008, right after my 50th birthday. And I was sort of on a high. <laughs> I thought things couldn't get much better. Uh-uh. Um, and... It was actually I went in for a running injury and the 
uh, lady who's doing the radio, uh, doing the um, x-rays, said, when's the last x-ray you had? And I said, I don't think I've had one. She said, well, a mammogram would count. She was one of the mums from the school. And I said, oh, I can't remember. She went to check and she said, you're due one. Book it now. Mm. And she made me book straight away. And I came back. Anyway, it was all very quick. Um, and... I went in for one operation and then they had to do another operation and I had to have like six months of chemo and then radiotherapy. But I I, I still did the show all the time because Malcolm and I were running the company, we were doing the show. It Mm. actually is what kept me going. And I said to everybody, I said to all the staff, look, you're all very sweet, but please, when I come to the studio, don't ask me how I am because there's 80 of you. I get 80 people asking me how I am and I'm actually here to not think about how I am, which was, which was, if I'd pondered on it, very scary because Mm. um, the first operation I had, I was diagnosed in the evening and I was in the, I was the last person to go have my bloods taken and everything at, at Spire Hospital in Norwich. And then the next morning at 6.30 a.m., I went to nuclear oncology before my operation, which is when some lovely person decided to take my photo and send it to the press. I hadn't even told my family. Oh my so, I mean, I was going straight into the operating theatre. I didn't have anything. So I didn't know how bad it was. Mm. And then when they told me they'd have to operate again, I remember I was like, oh, crap. Mm. <laughs> um, and the second time, I got a terrible infection. I was, I still hold the record for being drained the most time. It was like a grapefruit under my arm. So all the shows I did then, I put my hand on my hip. But what was so distressing was the smell. It was just, oh, I was just, I never felt clean. And I... I had to be careful with um, guests. Mm. And every so often, I had like three febrile fits. Unfortunately, one was in the bath, which was a little bit dangerous when my daughter and a friend would happen to be there. But I just, I had, I, you know, people say, how did you get through? This isn't probably a very PC answer, but I think it's for me that I didn't go to a support group because... My personal experience of, for me, it's different for every woman, sitting around with everybody else talking about it. And it kind of becomes a who's got the worst diagnosis competition. Mm. It's supposed to be on your own. Yeah, yeah. And I don't don't want to sit Mm. around and talk about it. I'd rather, I mean, I went running when Mm. I had key. And it was, everyone was saying, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. How brave. Honestly, if you'd seen me at the beginning of the run, I wasn't running. I was literally staggering from tree to tree thinking, Mm. can't fall down here. There are nettles. (laughs) Can't fall down here. There's dog poo. (laughs) Running is so important, though. I've run since I've been ill, and it's the one thing that's been enabled me to to keep going forward and just trying to do it. It just just makes you feel so much better afterwards. I know. Doesn't it? And and, and it's goal-setting. Yeah. It's goal-setting because you think... Think, you know, like today I went for any. I went for a run today, and it's killing me because I did sprint training the other day, and like a fool, mm. I didn't stretch. But I think, all right, I'm going to go to that tree. That's all I have to do. Get to that tree, <laughs> and then you get to that tree, and you think, yes, okay, right now that tree. You know, mm. and I, my younger daughter used to come with me with her phone because she was scared if something mm. happened to me. Yeah, um, and she hated running. Mm. I mean, she wanted. 
When she was five, she wanted a motorised wheelchair for her birthday because Homer had one in The Simpsons. She never wanted to walk again. And oh. so, but she came with me running. Yeah. And now she's totally into running. It's good. And it's really good. And yeah. we do that. And what we used to do is get um, that silly laser game and uh-huh. try and shoot each other. I, she'd, we'd whip each other on the bums with sticks yeah. to keep each other going. Yeah. And running that, really helps you oh, mentally and it's Physically, thing, mentally. So, yeah. it's, I don't know about you, it's my meditation. Mm, yeah. I can run with a problem. When I come back, yeah. somehow it's worked its way out. <laughs> so you've worked, worked with Mind for quite a long time. long time. Are you like an ambassador for them? Yes, yes. It's, yes. A, it's very good to dealing with kind of those issues. And, um, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I... I also, I mean, just to chip away at the stigma, I mean, I've been working as I worked in Australia as a mental health advisor for 10 years to the government. Mm. And so and and also Homestart, because that's where good mental health starts in parenting. So mm. it supports parents who are having difficulties, it might be multiple births or the mother might have depression or, or whatever. It doesn't mm. matter. But it's in the old days where the social workers might take the child into care. Homestarter trains up parents, empty nesters, to go and support the families, maybe daily, weekly, what have you. So that's there wasn't one in Norwich when I came, and yeah. I helped start that, and it's still going strong. I'm doing pointless celebrities to earn them some more money <laughs> while I'm here. But um, no, I, I've always been involved in, in chipping away at, at mental health. I spoke mm. at um, Harlow College in mm. Essex last week, um, and I did mental health in the media. So I had yeah. mental health student, students, social work students, and television and media and journalist students. And they're sitting oh, yeah. there looking at each other thinking, why are we all in the same lecture theatre? And I joined up the dots about That's positive good. mental health messages yeah. and negative mental health messages yeah. and, and how they affect us and our mental health. Definitely, that's brilliant. And so what's your secret, Tricia? What is the secret to dealing with life at the moment? What's the whole thing? Do you know what? You've said it. It's it's the same thing as running. It's getting to the next tree. Mm. It's, I now, the only difference with the running I do now, and before I had breast cancer, I do mindful running now. I take photographs. And I I support and coach quite a lot of women on my Instagram who've gone through breast cancer. One young lady I met doing um, Big Brother's bit on the side, Mm. she was in a terrible way waiting for a kidney Mm. transplant. And it was like, was she going to get one or not? She got one. She's had her operations and she's got through it. And what helped her beforehand was just even walking. And I and I say, share your pictures online. So they share mm. silly pictures of what they saw, like someone might take a picture of a dog poo and say, here, here was my imp- <laughs> here was my impetus for going for past it. Yeah. But we share pictures online. So I think that's the same thing in life. It's it's mindful running applied to life. Take pictures. Take time to stop. And when things are really tough, stake out the next tree or the next bush to get to. And when you feel like falling in a heap, 
be thankful that you're still upright and look at that heap and realise that you really don't want to go face down in a pile of dog poo. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's definitely good. So what does the future hold for you? Are you in America? Are you in the UK? What, what's the... Bit of both, really. I mean, I ended up in the States um, and I just, it, it's not even America because America's like Europe. It's so different. It's mm. just where I am, which is just outside New York in a place called Greenwich, Connecticut. And I just made really, really good friends there. And it's funny because I love Norfolk. Don't get me wrong. I really love it. But because we were in the country, you just couldn't go anywhere without getting in a car yeah. and driving somewhere. And then in hindsight, best thing I did when I joined NBC was get rid of all my drivers and staff and go by train and walk everywhere. And I met people on the train. I, I... I work for a couple of charities. One is, um, if you know Nar Rogers and Sheik, the band Sheik, they mm -hmm. have the We Are Family Foundation. And Nar Rogers and his partner Nancy and Falami and Kay and uh, the whole band have really taken me in. Yeah. And we work with kids, supporting kids from all over the world. It's TEDx Teen is one of theirs. And then the other one I work with is Opening Act, which works with the toughest schools in New York mm. and a lot of famous actors and actresses like the cast from Orange is the New Black and um, Joshua Jackson and mm. go in very quietly to these schools and we work with these young people to on what we're talking about on outlook and resilience and I mean I went to one school not long ago and the security was worse than at the airport I mean, there was, I, sh I wanted to take a picture, but you couldn't. Please, no guns, <laughs> weapons beyond this point. Yeah. I mean, these schools, you... you uh, no, it's fantastic okay. because when you're actually working en masse from outside, yeah. I remember me and this woman were looking for this address and we couldn't find it and there was all this, like, corrugated sheeting. We said, <laughs> well, it should be here. And it was. It, this school was behind it. From the street, you felt you could run away. But when we went in and we worked with these kids, and I will work with them mm. all the time for the last lot for three years, the kids we saw at the beginning and the kids who left are two totally different, just completely different things. And it's just amazing. And they do a play with all these famous people mm. on, the, on the last, after three years. And these kids who may not have been able to have eye contact or talk to you, um, or young gay people who were literally in fear of their lives for coming mm. out, when you see them three years later, it's just... I can't tell you. It's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I discovered that and I got a really good bunch of really good friends. And it's on the beach and I love the sea. <laughs> yeah. And I I just love where I am. But I come back to England. My daughters are here. They come mm -hmm. out to the States. I come here. And I actually see them more than when I was in Norfolk and they were in London. Because yeah. they're like, why do we want to come home to Norfolk, <laughs> Mum? Whereas it's like, oh, New York, goody, goody, goody. Yeah. And I come back here and, and work and, you know, it just works for me. It's only five and a half hours flight. Yeah, I mean, the train, fantastic. train yeah. to Norwich can take four hours. It <laughs> can indeed. Even... <laughs> A11. Sometimes you get stuck on it, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah, in Colchester. <laughs> God, I've got caught in Colchester so many times. Oh. So um, this week, um, basically, I'm dealing with anxiety. Anxiety is the thing that really annoys me it's hidden injury you can't yeah. see it it's something 
but it's definitely apparent. Yeah. Anxiety yeah. is something that it, I can't, you can't see it's there, but it's it's just really tricky and it hinders you. It hinders you, yes. holds you back entirely. Um, so I thought Trisha could talk to me about that because I thought you'd be perfect to talk about Thank that. You. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, anxiety, why, it's a massive thing. It's just... It is. Um, but often there are things, there are triggers to anxiety. I don't, mm. Do you have triggers to, to anxiety, do you think? Are there certain things? Putting me under pressure. Anything under pressure, that's what happens. But is it a specific? It's, so often it's a specific mm, kind of yeah, pressure. It's I can't see very well. So when I can't see overly well, um, it's through anxiety. And but, the fear. And the fear. Um, but that lifted. When I was in hospital, I couldn't see at all. But that has lifted a little bit. But that was through anxiety. It was. A, it's a physical thing, but it was a oh. real thing. Oh, really, yeah. I, yeah. Which is weird. So I find that that shouldn't... Well, be... the mind is a powerful thing. And yeah. I've, I mean, I've experienced it probably the other way around with medication. Yeah. Um, messing with my eyesight. Mm. And... I, I know, I, I I remember waking up in the morning yeah. well, thinking I was awake, mm. and I was awake, but my eyes... Weren't working. Weren't working, <laughs> so was I still sleeping? And there was that minute when you wake up, when you're trying to work out, am I asleep and think I'm awake? Right, or yeah. Because if I'm awake and I can't see anything, this is Is that anxiety terrifying. then similar to my anxiety that I've dealt with from Different. being in hospital when I couldn't see anything at all but now it has lifted it yeah. lifts a little bit but I still can't see on the right hand side so yeah. when it's a bit when I'm more stressed it gets worse but when yes. I'm more chilled it's totally fine so the secret for me is just to be Relax. Use a lot of meditation techniques and and running chill would out. help. And yeah. running would and help. And chill out. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, the most yeah. important thing, isn't it? Just but often, chill out. but often, if you know you've got to chill out, it's 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 yeah. getting to that stage where you feel safe enough to mm. chill out is is something else. I mean, um, I, I I think the worst anxiety I ever had was I'd had my first operation after mm. breast cancer and I was given these very, very strong um, painkillers like cocodamol and things like that. And I knew I couldn't do the show um, like that. And um, so uh, a lady called Ruth from Mind came along and taught me pain management and relaxation. Now I'm terrible. Mm. I think if I was at school now, I'd be labelled ADHD because I'm just on the go all the time. So for me to sit still and meditate and relax, I'm like, yeah, 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 hurry up. (laughs) And I was kind of cynical that it would work. One, I went to the studio. We were at Maidstone then. I was in the hotel with Security Pete, if you remember him. Oh, I remember Remember Security Security Pete. (laughs) And he was in his room. I was in mine. And I woke up and I thought, oh, God, I can't do this. The pain... And I'm I'm a toughie because I work mm. out and I run. But this pain, when pain obliterates thought, you can't even have a joined up thought because yeah. it's just. And you and I was panicking. I thought, oh, what have I done? Mm. I've got no painkillers. Uh, oh no, I did have pain. I said I have got these painkillers, but I couldn't take them until I'd eaten because they were so strong. Mm. And I I was lying on the bed, and I remember I was in such pain I couldn't feel the bed. Yeah. And I was thinking, how am I going to get up? How am I going to get up? And I, I completely was panicking. And I, I remember saying, you've got to get a grip. And it was like someone sh- screaming down a rabbit hole to actually get through to my head. I knew what I had to do. 
but I couldn't do it. And mm. then I remembered Ruth and I was like, well, bloody work anyway. But <laughs> I tried it and it started working little by little and I got myself mm. upright and I, I managed to just put some uh, flannel on my face and get some, and I remember going <laughs> like this and I, I managed to get myself out of that panic state. Mm. It took like half an hour. But it did teach me something. It did teach me. I thought I'd never come back from that. Yeah. But I I did. You learn I, from your mistakes. You learn and, from yeah. your, your mistakes. Mm. But I still have to say, it doesn't mean that the next time, like when I had my febrile fit in the bath, mm. um, I tried to apply the same panic, anti sort of, to get hold mm. of the anxiety. But because I was in a bath and slipping, yeah, it was... So, yeah, I don't know. You, you, I think once you recognize that it's a factor in your life, you have to deal with it, then you have to to deal with it. Yeah, I think the people who've suffered the most don't even know Mm. that that's that that's what it is. Yeah, I think once you name the beast and you start creating some strategies for keeping it at bay, you feel a little bit more in control. And I think anxiety is triggered by the fear of anxiety as much as anything else. Life has its highs and lows, and I'm just trying to get on with it with a smile on my face. Thanks so much for coming along. I really appreciate You're it. You're so welcome. Hope you like the podcast. Yes, That'd be great. Lovely. Thank great you idea. so much. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Emma's podcast. She's been through a hell of a lot over the past few years and listening to this makes all of her friends realise just what an inspiration she is. The Silver Lining Charity has helped Emma immeasurably, enabling her to meet lots of other people with brain injuries. The charity is currently raising money for a Goodwill Silver Lining mission to India, just one project that will help those affected by brain injury to get involved in exciting and purposeful activities in the community. Activities that go a long way to invigorate, motivate and rehabilitate. The charity also helps family members and friends who are often overlooked. If you've enjoyed listening and would like to donate to the Silver Lining Brain Injury, now's your chance. Visit www.thesilverlining.org.uk. Thank you.